This episode of The Mason Jar is brought to you by Grove City College, a Pennsylvania Christian college founded in 1876, serving high-achieving students and offering degrees in the liberal arts, engineering, sciences, business, and education. All degrees are anchored by a Western Civilization core curriculum. Located in Grove City, Pennsylvania, the college's mission is to equip students to pursue their unique callings through an academically excellent and Christ-centered living and learning experience while maintaining affordable tuition. Ask a friend about Grove City College and schedule a visit to one of the nation's most beautiful Christian college campuses. You can learn more at gcc.edu. That's gcc.edu. Hello and welcome back to The Mason Jar. I am David Kern and as always on The Mason Jar, I am joined by the star of The Mason Jar, Cindy Rollins. Cindy, how's it going and what's it like being the star of The Mason Jar? I was going to say, I feel like a diva here. I'm the star. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) Have you you ever ran into anybody on the street who was like, that's Cindy Rollins? Uh, Well, one time I was at the airport coming home from the Cersei Institute thing, um, the, the, the summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. The summer. Institute, and somebody yeah. at, in the airport knew who I was, but they had been at the conference too. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, Oh my goodness. But that, that was funny that, but, but I was, you know, not very far from where we had been meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we are here. To, we normally would do an interview episode towards the end of a month, but I wanted to, talk about something that I'm curious about. So I kind of hijacked the show to ask you some questions about something. Um, and that is a topic that is is pretty predominant in Susan Schaefer Macaulay's book, For the Children's Sake, which of course is heavily draws on Charlotte Mason. Right. And in chapter two of that book, the chapter is called Children Are Born Persons. She is kind of contemplating what that means, uh, Susan Schaefer Macaulay is. And she talks about the idea of, she talks about what it means for children to be born persons. And and she makes this statement. Um, Well, she says, try a simple experiment. Take a small child on your knee. Respect him. Do not see him as something to prune, form, or mold. She goes on on about that and what that means. Um, And so I was thinking about that. And as I was thinking about that and what that means and reading that chapter, um, I was also reading Tending the Heart of Virtue, Regan Garoyan's amazing mm-hmm. book yes. about literature. It's one of, if, you've, if, if our listeners have never read, well, either of these books, then you must read they them. They are both uh, top five books for me. I, both of those books um, are, are up there. I think, I suspect that as far as the listener demographic of this show, most people I'm guessing are at least aware or have, if not have, have read for the children's sake, but maybe right. few people have read uh, tending the heart of virtue, and the subtitle for that book is "How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Moral Imagination." And so, um, if you haven't read that, you definitely should. Uh, it's through Oxford University Press. You can get it on Amazon or, or wherever. But um, as I was reading that the, in chapter one of that book, which is called "Awakening the Moral Imagination," and then throughout the whole book, he talks about the idea of molding or shaping. In a very different way, it feels like to me, than Susan Schaefer-Macaulay does and Charlotte Mason does. And so I I was trying to figure out, do I agree or do I disagree with Charlotte Mason's assessment that we should, or at least Susan Schaefer-Macaulay's version of Charlotte Mason that says that we should not see children as um, people to 
prune form or mold. And I think you can, I think those three words mean different things. So I think you can, right. kind of, you can kind of, we could debate, you know, which word should be used there. Or whether yeah. Yeah. I mean, speak. yeah, this, that's the, that's the hard part of a conversation like this is um, finding the right words that we're, when we're not, you know, generalizing without, you know, losing our thought line, line of thought. Exactly. But okay. So then I got thinking, well, Vingaroyan talks about stories and the way they actually do shape and mold a child's moral imagination and affections. Right. So then I was just trying to parse out, you know, what is the difference in what these two people are trying to say um, about molding or shaping? And, and is there actually a difference? Is it a matter of like orientation? Is it a matter of semantics? Do they mean different things by the words? And so I thought, well, who better to ask this to than you? So I thought maybe we could talk about this for a half hour or so and try to try to parse this out. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I haven't, I, I gave I gave away recently, I lent, I lent, let me put it this way, but you, whenever you lend a book, you should consider that you're giving it exactly. away. Exactly. Well, I lent out my last copy of For the Children's Sake, so I haven't been able to pull, but I'm very familiar with um, Charlotte's views on children are born persons, and I do have my copy of Tending the Heart of Virtue with us, so just got, I just got wrapped up in reading all my underlinings, and, I, and now I'm like, oh, I'm reading this book again right now. I just cannot <laughs> wait to read it again. It's so I just good. I love this book, and um, so so I'm going to come at it from a really broad um, um attitude towards Charlotte Mason because mm -hmm. I don't have the book in front of me. But and I also because we only have 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So first of all, I, I'm really good. One of my talents is I always see, um, I always make connections between things. So, so I, to me, there's not a dichotomy going on here, mm -hmm. but I do think there is a distinction. Number one, when you read what Susan Schaefer Macaulay is saying and what Charlotte Mason was saying, about children, it is very jarring. And I think that was one of the biggest hurdles I have had with Charlotte Mason when I was a young mom, that children were born persons and I wasn't supposed to look at myself as the person who was molding or shaping them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just went against everything that I, that I thought was my actual job as a mother because I was busy molding and shaping my children in my mind. And, and so I really, really struggle with that. Then, um, and even now, um, we, you know, in, in our family, one of the big things that comes up is nature and nurture. And I guess, I guess mm -hmm. in a way, that's what we're talking about today. And, and it, it, if you say nature, it's kind of a little bit of a cop out, like, oh, it's just nature. I can't do anything about these kids or <laughs> what they are. Yeah. But, but I'm, and I'm a big believer in nature now that I've raised a bunch of kids and I have, I don't want to take any credit or blame <laughs> for anything. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm really bouncing back over to nature heavily, but, um, <laughs> but I, I spent my whole life nurturing them. And I obviously believe in nurture because I, I, that's what I did. So it's, so I, that whole concept is a false dichotomy is what you're saying. Yeah, it is. And I think, I think the thing is that, you know, it's just, it's almost like you could even in theology where you have the idea of predestination and not to get weird. I don't, it doesn't matter if you believe in that or not, but really that's God's business. If God predestined someone that, what does that have to do with us? Nothing at all. Um, God predestined them. And, and that's our business is just get to the work doing what God has called us to do. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, if he did, he did. And that's great. If he didn't, you know, it shouldn't affect us either way. I mean, in a way it can affect our 
some, okay, I get it. Let, let's jump off the theology wagon and get back yeah, over. Yeah, you're trying to make an analogy. You're not trying yeah. to make a theological argument. No, no, right I'm now. not trying yeah. to make a theological yeah, point so, here. But analogously, I get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, so, so when, when Susan Schaefer Macaulay says that, I think, I think they're making a major correction in, in the, in the um, trajectory of teaching. And especially if you think of Victorian times where uh, every, it was a whole new world and we were, now we were going to create this Superman and we were going to, and, and, you know, from there we get to, and, and you hear, and vegan touch, touches on some of that, um, Nietzsche and some of these things where mm -hmm. um, we're going to create these people and they're going to be the way we want them to be. Mm. And Charlotte Mason is coming along saying, no, um, they aren't. They're not going to be who we want them to be because they're going to be who they are. And that's not going to change. But one thing she wanted was the teacher to step aside. And, and, and so, so I think that's where she's in agreement with Vegan. Um, vegan saying these stories are going to change your child, the, your, the, the virtue, the morality of your child. And Charlotte Mason, I think, would agree with that. Yes, that's the power of these stories. You get out of the way. Don't, you don't want to be in the way of the power of these stories by shaping and mold, by, by having your child feel that you're shaping and molding them. And, so, so, is it, so that's, and that's why I was wondering, is it, is it about orientation? So is what Charlotte Mason's after is that it's not that it's that it's that we can't worry as parents about sort of shaping or molding them into like versions of ourselves, like in our own image. Uh, um, and we need to kind of let the, we like, we can't have a preconceived notion of what we think they should really turn out to be yeah i think this is where you know our children need to trust us and it's one reason i'm hesitant to, people always say why don't you have kids who are grown up and have been in this um were raised in charlotte mason get on get these kids on your podcast and i know many of them and have them talk about you know how well no child really likes to feel like they're that you were frankenstein and they're frankenstein's monster that you yeah. created them and that you made them into what they were. Charlotte Mason would have said, no, that's not what happened in these Charlotte Mason homes is that you got out of the way. You presented the true, the good, the beautiful, and you let those things work in your child according to who they were. And that, and that did work because it was, it's, it's set up to work. It's the way we learn. And, and so now your child has flourished and grown but it's not the same thing as saying, look what I created. Look at my child. I'm going to drag my child out here as, as my artifact as, as of what I did in my homeschool. Yeah. In, in for the children's sake, Susan Schaefer Macaulay quotes Charlotte Mason. It's on page 14 if people want to check it out. But she says, she's, well, she says the notion is that by means of a pull here, a push there, a compression elsewhere, a person is at last turned out according to the pattern the educator has in his mind. And that she rejects that idea. So Charlotte Mason rejected that idea is what it's saying. Yes. And I think that I, I really think moms need to reject that idea too, because actually that's where we're most vulnerable. That is what we see ourselves as doing. Yeah. And that's where we're panicking, you know, and sometimes, sometimes the answer to a problem in a family is to stop trying to fix it and let, um, 
and let it fix itself in a way. I mean, sometimes we look at, especially as we get into the teen years, um, we feel like, uh, oh, I got to fix this problem. My, my, my teenage son is doing this and I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And the more we try to fix it, the, the worse it gets. Because um, number one, our children see that we don't trust them and we don't trust God. And this is not to say that we don't put boundaries around our children because we trust them. I think there's a danger falling off the horse that way because, okay, let, let, I'm going to let my child go wild because I trust them. And obviously they're not doing anything trustworthy at all, but I'm still going to just close my eyes and trust them. Um, I, I think there's a difference. I, I think you could misunderstand that. And yet, um, uh, let me let me give an example of this in the early years, mm-hmm. and this is why I think this is why I think vegan would agree with um, with some of this. I I read last year the Yellow Fairy book to my student, and we there's a story in there called Big Klaus and Little Klaus. Mm-hmm. And uh, is this Little the Klaus, Lang the Andrew Lang Yellow? Fairy yes, book? these are the Lang books. Okay. Um, so it comes out of Hans Christian Andersen, this story of, of Big Klaus and Little Klaus. And it's just the most horrific story you would ever want to read. And you're reading it to your child. First, I'm reading it to my student. And um, you have people uh, flaying horses and stuffing their bodies with hay. You have a grandmother who is killed by her grandson so that he can make money off her body. And mm. uh, if, I, if I just tell it to you straight out, you would just be horrified. But it Sounds was like a book. German fairy tale. Yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. And I'm reading that story to my student. I think, what am I doing? So this weekend, I go to my, my granddaughter's house. I'm going to babysit. And they're just yakking away. This is a seven, a, a seven and a, and a six, a five, a five and a, a seven. They're about to change ages. So we'll just, they're in that range. Yeah, yeah. And they're, um, they're yakking away and they're telling me this story. And all of a sudden it rings a bell and I'm like, oh my goodness, did their parents read them big class? <laughs> and they bring the book out, the Hans Christian Andersen book out. And they go, Cece, please read the story to us again, please. And I remember, I didn't remember all the details, but I remember thinking, well, this was kind of gruesome. And these little tiny girls are so excited. And, and that's the story they want me to read out of the whole book. And I, so I read the story to them and I'm like, whoa. I, I, and I, and I told their dad, I said, well, I, I wouldn't have read it, but they said you had already read it to them. So I figured um, I didn't want to, I wouldn't want to get in trouble for reading this horrible story. But I started thinking about it because I started thinking, what justifies reading something like that to your children? And, and, and kind of laughing about it and thinking it's kind of cute. Here's what I think happens. When we read our children a story like that, I think it helps them to trust us. It, it helps them to trust hmm. that we're not just going to feed them a bunch of syrupy pap hmm. and expect them to be goody two-shoes and perfect little children and little wonders of the world. But instead, you know, when you read something so bizarre like that to the child, I think it's giving them a chance to say, my mom is going to actually tell me what's really going on in the world. Because what's going on in the world, I can tell something's up out there, Hmm. but not from the stories I'm getting. It sounds like everything's, you know, always wonderful and and turns out with a happy ending. But now we have this terrible story about Big Klaus and Little Klaus and, you know, some bad things happen in the story. I mean, it turns out okay in the end if you consider the fact that several people are dead and they never come back to life. But 
but I think those kind of fairy tales, I think Charlotte Mason, that's, you know, would, re it, it would really agree with that, that, that we are not um, sanitizing the world to the, obviously we're going to sanitize the world. We're not going to let our children wallow and, you know, the, what the current, some current TV show that's just, you know, garbage. Hmm. But when we read a fairy tale, it's not the garbage, but it's kind of the reality is there. And I do think it lets the child, um, I, I, I do think it gives the parent them a chance to trust their parents a little bit with the fact that they're not just going to prepare them for a pretend world, but they're actually going to prepare them for a real world. Mm. In Intending the heart of virtue, Vegan's talking about the idea of, we think that what we call moral education is going to transform our children. Yes. And I think where he definitely would agree, or where he and Charlotte Mason would agree is probably in in this section on page 24, he says much of what passes for moral education fails to nurture the moral imagination, yet only a pedagogy, and there he's talking about stories primarily, that awakens and enlivens the moral imagination will persuade the child or the student that courage is the ultimate test of good character, that honesty is essential for trust and harmony among persons, and that humility and a magnanimous spirit are goods greater than the prizes won by selfishness, pride, or the unscrupulous exercise of power and position and power. Mm. And he talks about he says a paragraph below the very process by which the self makes metaphors out of images given by experience and then employs these metaphors to find and suppose moral correspondences in, um, in experience. Um, well, he's defining the moral imagination there. And then he says, um, the moral imagination is active for well or ill strongly or weakly every moment of our lives in our sleep, as well as when we are awake. And then he says, but it needs nurture and proper exercise. Otherwise, it will atrophy like a muscle that is not used. Um, yes. And I think that kind of gets us back to some of my questions about where maybe they agree and disagree. Because you know that section that I just read about from Charlotte Mason and, and for the children's sake? Yeah. Susan Schaefer Macaulay says, so Charlotte Mason rejected the idea that what this young person needed was molding. And I was really struck by the idea of that word needed so she susan schaefer macaulay says that charlotte mason rejected the idea that the young person needed to be molding needed to be molded and so i'm thinking about what does she mean when she says that it doesn't that a child doesn't need to be molded is that the difference between like a child doesn't need to be changed because we all agree that our children at least need to grow right versus right. that they need to be fixed by us is that the difference or the difference yeah, between I think growing what, and fixing? What she's, yeah, I think what she's saying is that the child is already fully human and that there isn't going to be any kind of shaping him into something else than other than what he is, which is what God has made. Um, as parents, our job isn't. Now, he does have a moral imagination, like Vegan says, that's going to be, be uh, influenced for yeah. good or for evil. Mm. And I think Charlotte Mason would agree with that, but she would say it's not our job to look at it as shaping the human as rather putting him in touch with the things that will shape the way he thinks in, in his mind. And, and so that would be a little bit different to me. Than, I don't know if you remember the story in my book where I talked about thinking I was the potter yeah. and then I was shaping my son. And then I, I look up one day and he's just a totally different yeah. shape than what I've been shaping. And it was so difficult for me because I genuinely for 20, 19 years at that point had thought I was making a certain product and it was a totally different product. Yeah. And 
And I didn't get that. I just didn't get, even though I had read Charlotte Mason, everything in me thought I was shaping my children into what I wanted them to be. Now I, I laugh at that because I see how little power I had. I had lots of power to introduce my children to good ideas, but the ideas were always going to be between their mind and the idea. Mm. Um, I was I I was a filter in the early years of what actually got through. But I was not the filter of how what how the effect the ideas had on the child. I I couldn't be. It, it's never going to happen that way. The child is always going to be in direct contact with the idea. Now, whether the child can trust you as the parent or not comes into play. And and some children do lose trust in their parents when they feel like they're home. Say they're homeschooling them, but they get the feeling that their parent is not really letting them come in contact with ideas and what's really going on mm. out there. Yeah. Many many children rebel against that because because it's really not fair to the child to do that. Um, as scary as some of the ideas are, now there is such a thing as good timing, and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and and there is the whole idea of teaching them to love what they should love. But yeah. as you know, what we do, what we should do, and what we do have have very little to do with somebody saying this is what you should love, so love it. Um, that we really, with a child, if you really want them to love something, the worst thing you could do is say you should love this, <laughs> because um, that's right away they're going to be um, turned off and they're not going to they're not going to be able to love it. I mean, even at lunch today, our a little boy decided before he took one bite, he wasn't going to eat. He wasn't going to eat lunch. <laughs> and there was nothing we could say, uh, being, not being the parent and not being, you know, able to say, I'm going to, you know, spank you or I'm going to, you're not eating anything until bedtime. Yeah. Just like we, all we had as our tools were persuasion and that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to say, you should eat this. This is delicious. It's very good. Just give it one bite you know you don't have a right you don't have a right not to like it you know he'd already decided he wasn't going to eat it and there wasn't really anything we could do about that hmm. so so there is you know that whole thing we want them to love what they should love and that's where these stories come in and as this book so beautifully describes um and they can do the job they can be the voice that the child hears instead of uh of someone like the mom who's like, you should do this. You should eat your vegetables. You should, you know, brush your teeth. You should. Um, and now you should read this book. Um, but the story can come in and, and do the job that maybe um, we can't always do. So do you think that Charlotte Mason then would agree that stories do shape our children? Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, for words. her, she thought ideas are what shape us. So for her, it was, it's all about the idea. And, and, and I would say, and, and I'm sure Vegan would say, where we get ideas is from stories. Mm. I mean, her whole curriculum is based on stories right, and narrative. Right. narrative. Uh, and because that's mm. where ideas were. She didn't like um, rote memorization as far as, that, uh, not of poems and songs and things, but of just facts, mm -hmm. because she said there wasn't, there weren't any ideas behind that. That was just um, nothing, nothing to hold on to. Hmm. Just fact, 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 fact. But, but when there's an idea behind something, then that's what the mind grabs onto and holds onto. And these stories are full of those ideas. And they do, I mean, I can't help but read a story these, you know, I wasn't a fan of Hans Christian Andersen because his stories are kind of dark until I read um, um, this book, Tending the Heart of Virtue. Mm. 
and then I and then um, it became very the Snow Queen to me became a beautiful beautiful story hmm. um, without a soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I, you know, the, it's interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned the the, the road memorization of facts or whatever. Because that's something vegan would definitely, you know, they would be in agreement there. Um, and he even says that, you know, modern educators often think that developing the moral imagination or moral education is like teaching reading or arithmetic. But he said that's not even accurate because, well, he says in the case of moral education, children are supposed to be permitted to discover and clarify for themselves their own values and personal moral stance in the world, um, which is not the true in math. It's not the same with multiplication tables or whatever. And um, he said that um, what would be the outcome of an education that did, not, that did permit children to invent their own alphabets in math, which I think, you know, he goes on that, talks about that for a little bit and it's kind of funny, but he talks about how like Chesterton was not an advocate of the blunt or heavy instrument. And that's one of the reasons why fairy tales appealed to him so much because they don't qualify as scientific hypotheses or theories but they resonate with the deepest qualities of humanness, which gets back to the, you know, that children are born humans or born people, it's, you know, freedom and the moral imagination. Um, go ahead. And, and when we read a fairy tale, how, how often do we all agree? This should have, this is yeah, what exactly. he should have done. Yeah. No, nobody says, Oh yeah, I think he should have done the bad thing. Everybody Even if you is- ask, like if you, if I, I have a, six-year-old, a five-year-old, if I ask a, my six-year-old, yeah. my five-year-old, they will have different opinions often, unless the five-year-old is just going along with his brother. Yeah, yeah. They're going to have different thoughts, even at that age, on what happened in a story, which I think is right. kind, of a, kind of a mesmerizing, it's kind of a fascinating thing to watch as a parent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. It's interesting how you can, you wonder sometimes, do we read the same story? Yeah. You know, <laughs> somebody will just get something totally different out of it. But we all kind of root for the same the same outcome. Mm-hmm. We all mm-hmm. have the same opinion about what should happen in the story. The should really isn't in doubt when we're reading a story like that. So what, and, go, and so uh, it gives us con or it helps to socialize us, you could say. So in a story like a fairy tale where it seems like there's a it seems to us as adults like there's somewhat of a clear moral um statement at least or like certain characters are virtuous and certain characters are not that might be the better way of putting it when a student when or a child even you know let's just say when they're old enough to begin understanding you know virtues even if they can't name them if they draw the wrong conclusion or what we view as the wrong conclusion or the story seems to think is the wrong conclusion would charlotte mason say that we should correct them or that we should let them kind of just dwell on it and maybe one day they'll rethink that how, how would charlotte mason say we should approach yeah. something like that yeah i think yeah that's a good question and i would I, I would tend towards thinking that she would probably um want them to think it through on their own they've already drawn the wrong conclusion or what we would consider the wrong conclusion so i i'm not sure i how often I'm does not, telling our kids that, that what we think is the right thing actually work yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think she would respect it enough to realize that it happened already and that in a way as a parent, okay, now that's a piece of information I have. Mm. Not now I'm going to go take a screwdriver and change Mm. my child, but now I know something that I need to pray about. Now I know something that is alarming. (laughs) Now I know my child's actually, you know, a psychopath. (laughs) Something that you can have conversations about. 
yeah, I think you're going to have to accept that that's the child's opinion. And, and I do think that there is also this other thing where the modern person says, okay, let's tear down this fairy tale. Let's all have a different opinion. Now, the, the value in the fairy tale is that basically we all have the same opinion about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, this big Klaus was an idiot, but little Klaus was tricky. Um, you know, we, we don't, um, nobody, nobody wants to be big Klaus in the story. Nobody, um, um, wants to be him. I mean, he, he doesn't have a good outcome and he doesn't deserve a good outcome. Uh, And not to say that little Klaus deserves a good outcome either. He's a little bit sneaky, but, um, we, well, I I lost my thought getting all wrapped up in Big Klaus and Little <laughs> That's there trying to figure out. That's easy to do. Get lost in Big Klaus yeah, and Little so, so I think that we have to to, to realize that, um, you know, that they're going to come to their own conclusions. But also these stories are designed uh, in a way that we that we do agree about um, the, because we are human we do react to these stories in a very similar manner because we are very similar in the way we look at the world. And um, yes, you know, the more, the more we all root for the good guy, the more likely I think we are to be the good guy. But vegan makes a really good point in this book about um, redemption. You know, Um, there's one more factor besides just the fact that I have this great education of moral stories that have made me into the perfect hero is that I have to be redeemed. I have to be, there's something else besides just um, virtue. The, the virtue has to be fit, enlivened by the Holy Spirit to, to really have its true value and meaning. And that that's something else altogether. Um, that, and Charlotte Mason, I would definitely agree. She placed great, maybe this is why, she was so good at telling parents and teachers to back off because she had great confidence in the Holy spirit. Mm. And, and the more you go with your kids and the more you see how very little control you have over them, um, the more, um, the more magic you can actually see happen. If you want to put it that way in a CS Lewis kind of way, you, uh, you start to see answers to prayer. You start to see, Oh, it wasn't because I told my son this, 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 and this, but it was because I prayed for him and the Holy spirit got him in touch with someone who would tell him these things, or he was someone he could listen to. And so now my son is saved by the Holy spirit, um, not by, by my machinations as a mother. Um, so, so there's a little bit of magic involved and, and both Charlotte Mason and vegan cover that the idea that it's the Holy spirit that ultimately, ultimately our virtues are the fruits of the spirit and not just, um, Oh, we're the greatest people on earth. Cause we, we read all these stories and we know what the good guy does and what the bad guy does. Cause we could use that as and to be manipulative, manipulative also. Mm-hmm. Hmm. In fact, Little Klaus manipulated Big Klaus into doing bad things. Mm. If you guys want to read a fairy story and then go ask Angelina what it all means. <laughs> yeah. Vegan says that mere instruction, I've read this earlier, but he says that mere instruction and morality is not sufficient to nurture the virtues. And then he says it might even backfire, especially when the presentation is, mm. is heavily exhortative and the pupil's will is coerced. Um, and that's where, you know, one of the things that I really love about that chapter and for the children's sake is one simple line where she says that Charlotte Mason respected their minds. 
even as equally capable mm-hmm. as her own exceedingly capable mind. She respected their minds. It, that's italicized in the book and rightly so. That's a really striking phrase there. And I think whenever I've been thinking about that recently with, in relation to my son who's six and has, he's mm-hmm. entering that. Uh, well, I mean, they enter it early, but he's a very independent thinker. And yeah, that's, yeah. He wants to, he wants to feel like his thoughts are his own. Right. And, and he's independent thinker. He is a very verbal child. Um, and that is both good and bad, you know, like it, it has good effects and then bad effects. It can make him defiant, but it also can make him very yeah. creative and very like charming and things like that, you know, like it's a good thing. Right. And it's hard. And like, yeah. you have, it's hard to, it, it's like, I want to strangle him when he's doing the bad things, but then I want to praise him when he's doing the good things. And they both kind of come from the same mind. You know, you can't like praise one and right. strangle. And that's where, I mean, obviously that's where prudence and virtue and all those things they get developed over years. And so part of the reason that my question, this question came up is because I've been thinking, well, how do I, how do I help? What's my role in helping yeah. the good part become strengthened? Like that, the good parts of that, of his of his mind, of, of that, of that um, mind that I respect so much. How do I help focus the good parts while also maybe, you know, helping him not be, not tend towards the bad parts, you know? And I'm trying to think about that in a way that's like, how do I not shape the good? How do I not like make more of the good parts and lesser of the bad parts, you know? I think part of that is letting them fall and letting, letting their bad parts get them into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, not, not clearing the way when you says something, he shouldn't have and he hurt somebody's feelings and not smoothing it all over. Um, you know, but letting him face the full brunt of what it means to, to, to be that mm. way. Um, and little, in little ways, instead of making it all go away or, Oh, it's okay. You know, um, um, that's really hard to do too as parents. It's just um, if I'm going to step back and and not interfere in all these things, and I'm also going to have to let the child face the consequences of their actions. Sometimes those consequences are going to be the consequences that I've already set in place. You know, I've already said, um, you know, because we don't want to live like pigs and we're all in a family, you know, the garbage has to go out at a certain time and it doesn't really matter how charming you are and how cute you are about the fact that you forgot to do it. You know, there is going to be, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to do that job, you know, again, or you're going to have yeah. to <laughs> do it with somebody else's job because now they've been living in a pigsty yeah. that they didn't want to live in. It, yeah. In his case, it might be that he has 17 great reasons on why, the garbage probably didn't need to go out that week and his brother would be the one yes. who forgot to do it. And then he'd look at you and smile and make you laugh, you know, but, yes, but yes, it's, it's, yes. um, it's interesting. Be, I, we have to get out of here um, in a second. So, okay. But, okay. You know, it's, it's, it's this whole shaping thing has, is it's been on my mind for this reason. And I imagine that there's a lot of listeners out there who feel the same way, especially with young kids, because at six, like their minds are so, they're so creative and so fascinated by everything around them. And, they're, they're worthy of respect as Susan Schaefer Macaulay says. And yet at the same time, yeah. they're, they're not as socially aware, right? They're not as aware of how their actions affect other people or of the way they're, they let their emotions rule them 
you know, we yeah. all do that, but little kids. And you might, and they might see that you have a twinkle in your eye, but you're also going to have a firmness in, in the boundary. The boundary's there. You were supposed to take out the garbage. I get, yeah, that's cute. I get your joke, but um, hey, you're, you're still going to have yeah. to pay the price for not doing that. Yeah. So I guess you have to let them see that you, you laugh at, with them but that doesn't really change anything. <laughs> I think maybe what I'm just discovering over the last little while is like as a young parent, it's probably something that all parents have to kind of discover is there's something of a fine line here <laughs> that we have to walk. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, it's, and you know, it I mean, doesn't I've, go no, away. I've known that, I've known that like mentally since before I had kids, like watching my own parents, parent us, like there's this fine line, right? right but when you right, actually exactly. are trying to live that out, it because it's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, because you can undermine yourself undermine yourself quite a bit as a parent. Yeah. And because you get your kids and you love them and you can you can kind of be blind to the fact that you're enabling bad behavior because you understand them. You understand why they did the bad behavior. Yeah. Um, and you think it's cute and it is cute. And um but it I mean all sadly all of parenting, I don't think it ever goes away even when your kids are an adult, it's oh, there's just always some fine line there, and you know you're always messing it up, going over the wrong one, one way or the other. I guess. That's why it's so hard to help parents because it's like, well, don't do this, but don't do it too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's the same way with any relationship, right? Like with your spouse. Yeah, there's a fine line yes. with your spouse, and I guess that's part yes. of being born persons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people, man, they are. That's that's what does Chesterton say? It's people. I, I I like mankind. It's people I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> or he doesn't say it as as himself, but as what as what the the do gooders, oh, and that yeah, is yeah. what Charlotte Mason wanted to avoid. And I don't, I think vegan would want to avoid that too. The whole do gooder, like the someone, mm-hmm. like Lewis always talks about, the person who's trying to fix the world is the most mm-hmm. dangerous person on earth and the most unpleasant person to be around. And we don't want to be <laughs> yeah. children to our children, but we are wanting the very best for them. So. Um, I think, I think Charlotte would agree. I don't think there's anything about what vegan says that Charlotte would disagree with. He might disagree with her. Um, some of the ways that she said things, um, as overstepping, um, the bounds, but I think ultimately in my mind, there's not a dichotomy between them. Yeah. I I I think the conclusion I've sort of drawn about this and you've kind of confirmed i suppose is that in some of it is just how it's how they're expressing it because they're coming from different angles and so yeah yeah like, they definitely are but it, and maybe it's just like if they got in a room they'd probably agree but they're just stating things slightly differently so there's it seems like they're and they're speaking to different audiences i yep, mean yep. and she was speaking out of that victorian age where um the child was um, I was just reading Chesterton. He's talking about uh, the child at that point. There, there's, there's also the whole thing of making the child the center of the world. When we say children are born persons, it really means they also have responsibilities and they have to step up. It, they aren't just the king of the world at that point. They don't just move right up to kinghood, mm. or, you know. So yeah, yeah. Well, we should go. Thank you. Yes, thank, we should. Thank you for, uh, you know answering some questions and chatting. Oh, that was fun. I enjoyed those questions and I enjoyed those books. Yeah. Everybody who does not have them should definitely, you know, make a point to add them to your to read list in 2018 if you haven't yet. So, and like I said, I think, I know we carry for the children's sake and our website and tending the heart of virtue is available on Amazon and we hope to carry that soon. So. Oh, I hope so. It's such a perfect book. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's been listening and we will talk to you next time on the Mason Jar.